This episode has been brought to you by Always Discreet. Head to alwaysdiscreet.com.au to learn more about bladder leak tips, management, and incredible bladder leak protection. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I am here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. So we talk a lot about how exercise affects pressure onto pelvic floor and pelvic floor dysfunction, but we don't talk about talking and our vocal cords and how the glottis inside our vocal cords has a role in regulating pressure and what's happening down below with the pelvic floor. And that is what today's episode is all about. I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Aliza Rudovsky. Now, for those of you who don't know her, I'm going to read from her bio. She's a native of Pittsburgh. She grew up as a dancer. She studied modern dance in college and performed professionally for several years before going on to graduate to graduate school for her doctorate in physical therapy at the University of Washington in Seattle. As a physical therapist, she specialized training in pelvic floor dysfunction and women's health through the Herman and Wallace Institute. So that's actually how I had heard from her was through Kathy Wallace. She trained as a dance physio through the Harkness Center for Dance Injuries and the Australian Ballet. She also has unique training in physical therapy or physiotherapy for voice dysfunction and treats both performing artists and other occupational voice users. Now, she completed her PhD in 2018, and anyone who listens to this knows I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to research, so this is what also sparked my interest in interviewing her for this podcast episode. So she completed her PhD in 2018 through the University of Copenhagen in collaboration with Monash and Latrobe Universities in Melbourne, Australia, under the supervision of Dr. Jill Cook. Her research, which she'll talk about today, involved studying tendon development in adolescent ballet dancers. She's published this research in several sports journals, as well as the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science. Currently, she's an assistant professor at Penn State University, where she has a split appointment in the Department of Kinesiology and the School of Theater. In kinesiology, which is different to what we talk about with regards to kinesiology in Australia, So kinesiology there, she teaches athletic training students and does research. And in the School of Theatre, she runs an on-site physiotherapy clinic for the musical theatre and acting students. Her current research involves connecting the pelvic floor to the vocal cords to study how they coordinate to regulate pressure in the trunk. This research is currently funded by the Foundation for PT Research, Pelvic Health Research. She's a mother of two delightful young boys with a third baby on the way. She enjoys biking, hiking, and exploring central physical activity. Oh, PA, as in I'm assuming that is Pennsylvania. Um, I will leave that in so everyone can laugh at me. Um, Anyway, with her family. So I'm going to stop talking. She is brilliant. It is such a cool episode, so I hope everybody enjoys. 
explain to me. So you started off as like a Musk physio. Yeah. So my, yeah, my previous life background was that I was a modern dancer. So that was kind of what I was doing before I went to PT school. And, um, and this is all in the States. Um, so even though I like calling myself a physio, technically I'm a physical therapist, but, (laughs) um, but I sort of always had my eye on working with dancers and that was sort of, so early on in PT school, I was fortunate to go to university of Washington, which is in Seattle, which is where Kathy Wallace is based. Um, so I kind of found out about her pretty early on in PT school and thought that that would be, I was always interested in women's health and pelvic floor. So I thought I would try and just do like an independent study with her. Um, and then I also at the same time was interested in dance medicine. So those are kind of like my two tracks that I wanted to pursue. Um, and I, I did an internship in New York at the Harkness center for dance injuries. And I also got to study with Kathy. I did this like year long independent study with her, which was so awesome. We would just, I would go to her clinic and she would let me shadow patients. And then I did like a side research project with her and we would just like sit in her kitchen and debate stuff for hours. (laughs) Like we actually still do that though. Now it's just all on the phone, but (laughs) like she's such an amazing mentor. And I've fortunately and unfortunately moved a lot over the last few years. So my clinical practice has kind of really been based on where I am and what the population is. So we first moved to Melbourne. My husband was doing a postdoc there. So that's how we ended up at Monash. In that practice, uh, that's where I got hooked up both with Jill Cook, who was, I actually just started reaching out. I was curious about research. I wanted to try. It's always been, it had always been something that I thought would be in my long-term future, I didn't think two years out of PT school, it would be something I would embark on. But um, somebody pointed me towards her and said that she had done some work with Australian Ballet and it'd be worth contacting her. And then I also worked at a clinic for performing artists. Um, And I was sort of the like dance, one of the like dance specialists there. And I did, I had like an on-site clinic at a dance school Um, and we would treat backstage at musical theater shows that were touring. And the director of that clinic, her name's Annie Strauch, she had spent some time, um, in London on the West End, which is like their equivalent of Broadway. And she had worked with physios and osteos there. And her father is a, um, an ENT and she's kind of always worked closely with the speech world, speech and language world. And so she through her training there, learn these like vocal unloading techniques. And then she kind of evolved it into her own thing. And it's officially called vocal unloading. And so she learned it in the context of treating musical theater performers, you know, backstage at these musical theater shows, um, and has since really developed. It works a lot with really anybody with vocal problems. That's teachers, lawyers, chefs, you know, any, anybody in the entertainment industry, politicians, people who are just speaking all day long. Yeah. So I started learning that from her. I took a course with her. It was actually, I had this sort of aha moment. I was taking a course with her and learning about the vocal folds. And I was like, Hmm, first of all, that looks a lot like a vagina. (laughs) 
yes, and Kathy then- <laughs> sent me a photo. That's yeah. right. And I went, oh, yes, it does. Yeah. Like, yeah, get that. And then, you know, I'm listening to her course and thinking like, oh, you know, the problems we have at the vocal folds are related to coordination, continence. Um, they obviously don't call it continence in the vocal folds, but I sort of think of that as like you're not able to control the flow in, up and down so well, whether it's, you know, a paralysis or a polyp or nodule on the folds or something's wrong with the larynx or the muscles around it or whatever, for whatever reason, there's a, a lot of the issues that you encounter, pain syndromes, um, pain with swallowing, it just sounded really familiar to me. And it sounded a lot like when I took Kathy's course about the pelvic floor, I was like, Oh, it's issues of regulating pressure, pain, motor control, trigger points. And it's a weird spot that people feel uncomfortable getting into. (laughs) And like, I don't know about you, but for me in grad school and PT school, we didn't spend very much time in the front of the neck at all. And I did not feel comfortable touching, you know, I would do an SCM release, but that was basically the extent of working on the front of people's necks. And then I was learning these mobilizations where you're reaching behind somebody's larynx and pulling it forward and like mobilizing their hyoid and trying to stretch their vocal folds. And it's like pretty invasive to me. We also do a lot of intraoral work as well, getting into their mouth and TMJ kind of area, tongue root, all of that. Um, and it, you know, similar, we didn't do any obviously internal pelvic floor work in PT school. And I think it feels very taboo to, to people or just feels uncomfortable to like do internal pelvic floor assessment and whatever manual therapy may be needed. Um, but you know, I sort of think it's like anywhere else in the body. You have alignment issues, you have joint issues, you have muscle tone issues, you have motor control issues, you have strength control um, range of motion, all, like it's all, it's the same issues that we have in the shoulder that we have in the pelvic floor that we have in the larynx and the neck and the mouth. Um, so it kind of, it may, it started to click to me that this was like actually the top and the bottom of the pressure canister. And, you know, I immediately was thinking of Mary Massery's work, um, with Paul Hodges and, you know, she was one of the first people to think of the glottis as having a role in balance. So she was kind of starting to connect more upwards. And I was thinking like, oh, I think we can go even further than connecting glottis to diaphragm and TA and really thinking of like the pelvic floor and that it's, these are kind of your caps. These are your valves at the top and the bottom of your pressure canister. And and they're both really important for modulating pressure. So it was more the clinical context that started me thinking about that connection. Meanwhile, I still had years of research of tendons to kind of get through before. So you hadn't even done your tendon research and all of that stuff was in your mind. I was doing that all at the same time. So, so, and now I've been able, I have more independence and autonomy in my research and I'm, I'm pivoting towards, I've already done two pilot studies or one pilot study, one actual study. I just got a grant from the foundation for physical therapy research through their women's health. Now it's pelvic health research grant program, um, to do a bigger version of this pilot study that I did. So what, so why is the glottis so important? Like, even if we go back to total basics, like why do we need to think about the glottis with regards to pelvic floor? Because there's still a lot of people who've never done musk first and they've just done pelvic floor 
you know, programs or degrees. And as far as I know, they don't really talk about that in that either. Right. So I guess even more basic, I'm just going to pare it down that the glottis is actually the space between the vocal folds, because I think that's not common knowledge. So um, the way that the vocal folds and the glottis work, so essentially, it's a V pointing like with the open part pointing back towards your backside. Um, And if you adduct the vocal folds, that's when the they're touching. So that's when the space is, the glottis is closed. That's a space in the middle. If they're abducted, then it's that V shape pointing towards you. So then the glottis is open. So the glottis has a couple of really important functions. The main two functions are um, to help facilitate breathing. So it has to be open or abducted in order to allow breath. The glottis is at the sitting at the top of the trachea. So it's kind of the valve between the the lungs and your mouth. How far um, down your neck is it? It's about, it's your Adam's apple. Okay. Yep. So yep. that's where we're kind of shooting back with that V. Yep. So, well, the Adam's apple is your thyroid cartilage, but the vocal folds are on the inside of that shooting back. So middle of your neck is kind of that valve between the lungs, trachea, and then glottis. And then it's sort of the epiglottal region mouth breathing out. So has to be open for breathing. And then it closes um, in order to protect your airway when you swallow. So preventing aspiration. Those are the two most important functions. Um, And I think in the ENT world, they kind of consider speech like a luxury. (laughs) It's like a bonus function, which is where the vocal folds are adducted, but they're not totally shut. And then you're forcing pressure from the lungs upwards, which causes the vocal folds to vibrate together. And it's that vibration that makes sound happen. And then you modulate the, so you're modulating pressure in the vocal folds, but then you're actually articulating the different sounds in your mouth. So making the different vowels and consonants and all those different sounds are happening between the tongue and the cheeks and the lips and the um, teeth. So that's sort of how we actually manipulate the sound that's, that's coming up from the um, supraglottal, subglottal pressure up through the vocal folds and out of your mouth. Why do some so, people sound horrible and some people sound good? At what point does that get messed up? <laughs> I mean, I think it's like any athlete that <laughs> there's some combination of nature and nurture that some people have really good motor control of their the teeny tiny muscles that help to manipulate your larynx and all of the muscles in your mouth and tongue. Um, and then there's a lot of training that goes along with it. <laughs> all right. Okay. Right. But the reason that I think it's relevant and directly related to the pelvic floor is, um, so I think of it in terms of pressure maintenance. So in order to produce sound, you have to be generating this subglottal pressure that's coming up from your thorax from your lungs. So what is regulating, what's helping to drive that breath and that pressure? The respiratory diaphragm. So what else does the respiratory diaphragm have a direct relationship with? The pelvic floor and intra-abdominal pressure, which is also related to function and dysfunction in the abdominal cavity and in the pelvis. So prolapse, incontinence, pain, bowel problems, um, other GI problems, 
disc problems, all of that I think is related to pressure regulation and maintenance in the abdominal cavity, which is directly related to diaphragm, which is basically what's driving all of the pressure in the thoracic cavity. So top and bottom of a cav of a canister that's made up of two halves that have a diaphragm cutting it in the middle, not cutting, but dividing it in the middle. So that's sort of why I think they're related because, um, and I think that phonation is important because while a lot of the research that we've looked at so far in terms of that relationship between the glottis and pelvic floor has looked at um, types of breathing and certain forced expiration activities like a cough. Um, phonation is different because it's a controlled vibration, which in my mind, I think of it as like if you take a can of soda, a bottle of soda water and you shake it up, if you really quickly just open that cap right off, what's going to happen? You're going to have a, an, you're going to have an explosion. Um, if you, so what do you do? Like, what would you do to keep it from exploding? How would you open it without letting it explode? Slowly. You'd slowly do, yep, little teeny tiny twists at a time, allow the pressure to release with control. So to me, that's the difference between speaking and coughing, coughing, even yelling and coughing. So coughing is a quick forced expiration. The vocal folds do do some slamming together, but it's not controlled. Um, and it's quite variable between how different people cough. But if you look at somebody yelling or saying something loud with a quick forced expiration on a video stroboscopy, which is how you would look with the camera down at the vocal folds, it's controlled vibration. So that's opening slowly. So to me, that's sort of the difference between phonation, which I think hasn't really been explored so much yet in the literature, whereas in relation to the pelvic floor, whereas other things like a cough have been, I think the cough is more about the forced expiration and the, and like a yell or singing or speaking is more about modulating and controlling the pressure release. So how do we do that? Yeah. So you, you talk about modulating the pressure release through the vocal cords and I'm assuming the part of that there's the whole un, you know subconscious side that it's just working without you having to think about it, but then right. you're able to control that consciously as well. So how do we do that? Right. So some easy ways to link into modulating pressure are um, the volume or the loudness of how you're speaking. So the louder you speak, the more subglottal pressure you're going to need. So we're not um, specifically thinking like with the pelvic floor, it's unconscious or subconscious and conscious, but we're teaching people to contract and relax muscles. We're not teaching people to contract and relax our vocal cords. We're just changing so, it different ways. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's similar in that you're not like, would you ever teach, would you ever instruct a patient to do an eccentric contraction of their pelvic floor? Like you wouldn't say you wouldn't say I want you to think of lengthening your pelvic floor while it's still contracting to allow some controlled lengthening. Like you wouldn't you just wouldn't ever say that. you wouldn't even say that with a bicep. Like you're not you're not cueing a really kind of complicated concept to a patient so literally and specifically you just think of 
what the action is that you're trying to get them to do. So it's the same in the vocal folds. So um, there's the way, so the other way that we um, can manipulate the larynx is by altering the pitch or like how high or how low you're speaking. So that, the way that happens is the thyroid cartilage. So the larynx is made up of the, you have the hyoid bone, which is that sort of floating horseshoe shaped bone at the top that you can sort of feel if you grab the top of your neck gently. <laughs> um, and then below that, the Adam's apple region, that's the thyroid cartilage and that sits on top of the cricoid cartilage. So the thyroid cartilage actually tilts, it kind of rotates in an anterior posterior direction. And when it tilts anteriorly, it actually lengthens the vocal folds. So that what happens when you're lengthening and putting more tension or thinning out and lengthening the vocal folds is the vibration happens faster. And when you have a faster vibration, um, you have a higher pitch and that there's a lot of different muscles that work together to coordinate that tilt. I would never cue someone though. Actually maybe an elite singer, I would maybe say like use more cricothyroid muscle or use more thyroid muscle. Like the, you, Sometimes they like they talk about stuff as like more CT or more TA, which is kind of like higher pitch dominant or lower pitch dominant. But in a in a, certainly in a pelvic floor population, if they're not professionally trained singers, I would never do that. But I think most people can understand speak in a really high pitch or sing in a really high pitch or sing in a really low pitch. So that's a way that you can also modulate pressure a bit. So with pelvic floor, specifically with exercise, we talk a lot about breathing and using the breath to take pressure off pelvic floor to make things easier. So how do you, how does that change when we are telling people, because often what we'll say, or I'll hear people say is, you know, breathe out through pursed lips because it's helping abdominals engage, it's helping pelvic floor engage, it's probably slowing the airflow down, as opposed to just breathing out normally. Does that make a difference? You know, looking at Talaz's work that the, you know, we know sort of what the normal inspiration, expiration pattern is of the pelvic floor, thinking that it ascends during expiration, um, descends during inspiration. Which was only on, I think, 12 people in an MRI anyway. It was a low subject yeah, study. I actually think it was even, well, the phase locking one I thought was even four. Yeah. Was it 12? There were two different papers. One I think was four and one I think was two. Cool but there concept. Been other studies. There was a different one that she did. The um, There was a different one with 40 healthy women mm. and they did palpation, digital palpation to feel um, strength of pelvic floor contraction as well as if it, if it was like a concentric contraction or a bulge. And as the expiration got stronger, they felt more pelvic floor contraction. Mm-hmm. However, when they got to a cough, it bulged. And this is in a normal healthy population. And it's sort of connecting that with what I was seeing started to get me thinking that there's got to be some sort of tipping point that I think is probably different in everyone where a certain amount of that expiration flow is going to be a concentric contraction that goes along with pelvic floor elevation. And then once you kind of pass your tipping point, it switches to an eccentric contraction and it 
in a healthy population. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it um, lengthens. And, Which makes sense. And I think that that tipping point is probably different for everyone and probably mm-hmm. based on a ton of different variables, including basically everything that's happening between the glottis and the pelvic floor. Mm. Um, and then I suspect that between symptomatic and asymptomatic people, it's probably even much more different. And maybe it's not an eccentric contraction, but it's just actually a relaxation or a, mm. more of a bulge, more of like a leakage, if yeah. you will, yeah. <laughs> um, or prolapse or whatever. So it's, it's just not controlled at all. Whereas I think in a healthy population, I suspect, and I, this is just conjecture, but I think that it's just, I think that it's a controlled eccentric contraction that's allowing as once you pass your tipping point where you've used enough, you're requiring enough pressure and recruiting abdominals as well. So once you start recruiting abdominals to be, you know, yelling or making or singing or making that sound louder. Um, you're also increasing intra-abdominal pressure. And I think the pelvic floor is helping to just accommodate that sort of quick increase in intra-abdominal pressure. How do we incorporate it when we're talking about using breath to help right, women right. do certain types of exercises? So, and that's where I think, so this is also like a conversation that I have with Kathy all the time, because we're trying to think about how to start incorporating this into the pelvic floor um, continuing education model. And I think that, um, I think that it's basically a spectrum. It's, it's, you want to think of it like your progressive loading program. Quiet breathing is going to be kind of your most basic that's your like lowest level of activity. Then you're getting up a little bit higher. Um, you, you might have breathing through pursed lips. So that's going to, you're get you're getting a little bit of resistance. You're getting a little bit more TA pelvic floor activation. Then we start bringing in some phonation. So some speech, whether that's just a sustained vowel or whatever it is, starting at a low volume, then starting to get louder, raising it up louder, louder, yell, we want to see what's happening in the pelvic floor during a yell and then um, maybe a cough or something like that. Um, but I, I sort of think about... And that's like you know, a pressure I, continuum of intra-abdominal pressure, exactly, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Like I think that that would be useful to know when you're doing your assessment of like where what's happening as we're modulating the pressure across the spectrum in the pelvic floor. And then we can identify like, Oh, what is this person's tipping point? How good is their motor control in transitioning from concentric to eccentric pelvic floor contraction? Where do they fail? What do we need to be training? Like, does this person need to be working on like a real beginner who has really poor pelvic floor control? They probably need to be working in that kind of lower, like just inspiration, expiration, get that coordination down. Somebody who's much more advanced, like you can be working at speaking, speaking high, singing, like kind of working. So I would say that's like a more challenging, that's like when you're doing single leg balance on a BOSU with your eyes closed. Like we're kind of getting a little and bit now more. now you get them to sing. Oh. Yes. That'd be fun. I've never told a patient to sing. Yeah. It's really fun when they actually are singers. I had yeah. a pelvic floor patient who was actually a singer also, and it was like so fun for both of us. I see, we see, I like, I see quite a few patients who are singers, uh, but yeah. I don't know enough about that babies. end. <laughs> That's it. They have babies. But I don't know enough about that. I just know that they're probably going to 
give me a really good Valsalva when I want to test it or a strain when I'm trying to test how much descent they have because I'm like oh you'll be good at this right total flip side I don't I mean I'm assuming you don't use this kind of in singing but when we talk about closing the glottis Mm -hmm. what does that mean and when we say it like like, I, I know what it means, but what does it mean when you're trying to explain to someone? Because if you tell someone, close your glottis and push down or bear down, they don't understand what that is. Like, what are we trying to tell them? And yeah, what is this I doing? Mean, honestly, it's tricky. So I, this is another thing that Kathy and I go back and forth about is like, you know, the definition of Valsalva. Strain, yep. Well, the original definition. Well, that's why I'm like, there's two of them. We can talk about so both. The, like the original definition of Valsalva was to pop your eardrums. Yeah. That's yeah. why, like that, it was to clear your eustachian tube. So that's why the Valsalva maneuver was originally created. So that's glottis open. All right. And that's how do you do that? The, so that? So that if you think about you're flying on a plane and you need to pop your ears, what do you do? Plug your nose. Exactly. Your nose. You, go, you plug your nose and you send the air up. So you leave your, so it's still a quick forced expiration, but you leave your glottis open so that it can go past up to your eardrums. But if you think about, um, you know, you're about to lift a couch up or pick your kid up or, or have to poop or something like that. And you're doing like that strain downward, then you close your glottis and force the pressure down. So that is what Valsalva has become in the literature and in, I think, just general terminology, but that's not actually what it originally was. Also, again, that's according to Talaz. Yeah. Um, but, but I buy that, and that's sort of what I'm – that's how I differentiate the terminology. But I think the way – so we did that in our study. We did a strain, and we did a, true, a Valsalva with the aim of, like, popping your eardrums. And I told people to, you know, plug your nose, try and blow out as if you were going to pop your eardrums without actually doing any damage. <laughs> um, but I'll be honest, they followed the strain pattern for all of it. Hmm. Yeah. So, and I don't know the other thing. So I don't know if they were doing it wrong. I didn't have a camera in there to see what was happening in their vocal folds. But I'm wondering um, if it's possible that because it's such a quick forced expiration, even if the glottis is open, if you think, if you take a balloon and you really quick squeeze the middle of it, what happens? Pressure goes both up and down at the same time. So that's what I'm wondering if even if the glottis stays open, that you're still getting that bi-directional quick increase in pressure and that maybe that's just normal. Um, I don't know yet. I mean, it would be interesting. I should talk to some speech therapists or some any or an ENT who does the stroboscopy and see see what happens when you cue different things because it's hard to cue. But it's I would really say, hard. I mean, the other thing is that the vocal folds close when you swallow. Yeah. So yep. that's maybe a cue that I'm going to start trying to play around with of like, pretend you're about to swallow, close your airway at the top. Yeah. If you just tell people though, to hold their breath, like take a big breath in, hold it and push down. Does it always just automatically close? I don't think it always does. I think it probably most of the time does, but I don't think it all, I don't think we have evidence that it always does. Not to my knowledge that, that may be out there somewhere in the research world, but I have not seen that paper yet if it exists. But if they don't let air escape, can we 
assume that it's closed. But you can close off your nose and your mouth. Everyone should know this by now. As a physiotherapist, I do not believe in telling women with urinary incontinence just to wear a pad or a liner and keep pushing through. I also don't believe that they have to stop doing the exercise and activities that they love forever in order to manage it. I know how important pelvic floor exercises are, I know how important modifications to risk factors are, and I know how important education is in helping to treat urinary incontinence, but I also know how extremely important promoting physical activity is. We have the highest quality evidence demonstrating that physiotherapists can greatly improve or often cure incontinence. But I also know that this management takes time and for some women, while it might improve their leaking by 80%, sometimes they will still have leaking or there will be a subset of women that we can't help enough. This is why I feel incontinence pads and liners still have a place and I'm honored to be asked to partner up with Always Discreet to help break the stigma around incontinence, empower and support women to start conversations about bladder leakage, provide the best information on management and also provide options to decrease embarrassing accidents that they may continue to have. So follow the hashtag WeAlwaysGotYou which is we, W-E-E, join in on the conversation and as professionals continue to educate women about how we can help. So you can close off nose and mouth, but the glottis stays open. Yeah. Oh, so you could, okay. yeah. Is that why sometimes when people come out, say, of like the really heavy power lifters and weightlifters, that like if they detach their retinas, that maybe their glottis opened? <laughs> not sure yeah maybe I mean I hadn't thought about that but um yeah I mean what else would let the pressure get so high up there yeah it's interesting I mean, that's what I was like alternative oh. might be like but the alternative would be like blowing out your pelvic floor yes yes which happens with yes. heavy weightlifting it can happen but this is where so I do a lot of transperineal ultrasound Um, And I get a lot of my women to stand up and we'll go through their different bracing techniques and patterns when they do Mm -hmm. heavy lifting, which always involves some type of holding their breath. Everyone calls it a Valsalva, but everybody does it a different way. And I can't even work out with coaches how they're coaching it. And if they do, everyone does it different. And that's why I'm like, but what are you doing? Um, Well, can you do that study and find out like what the different cueing does for the glottis? Well, okay, next. <laughs> like, for somebody who's listening who wants to, can somebody do that study and let us know what they find with, like, how, how do you cue the glottis to do, to close when you want it to and open when you want it to for, I mean, again, I think it's, I just don't think you can say with certainty without having a camera in there at this point. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. feel confident that I can say with certainty um, that when I cue you to take a breath hold and push it, push the pressure downwards, yeah. that you're actually closing the glottis. Even though, I yeah. mean, honestly, this is in contradiction to <laughs> what I say in my paper because I'm trying to make that claim. Yeah. But I can't. You can't make that claim unless you have a camera unless in there. Unless you're looking at it, yeah. But yeah. the whole point of it is to help regulate pressure. Help regulate and direct. And I think as much as we can, the control that we have if we don't have a camera in there is that – 
we can think of as many different types of cueing that direct pressure upwards or direct pressure downwards. Again, I think the cue of popping your ears is something that almost anybody can relate to and you can actually feel it in your eardrums. And if you're closing, you know, if you're trying to pop your eardrums, but you're actually like pushing downwards, you won't feel that. Like it just feels really different, but without a camera, I can't say. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So. So essentially the more open it is, the less pressure, intraabdominal pressure and the more closed it is, the greater the intra-abdominal pressure when you're trying to increase force production with your abdominals. Does that make sense? Yes. It's going to like, it's going to act as resistance. Yes. Yeah. Which will increase pressure. Yeah. I need to just tie that back to what you were initially asking. Cause you were asking about cueing, like cueing to, um, do a pelvic floor exercise with pursed lips on an exhale. Yeah, so yeah. As in, and not just a, a, a isolated pelvic floor. I mean, kind of through movement right. or through exercise. Yeah. yeah. So that so the goal when you're doing the pursed lips is that you're also trying to basically slow and control the exhalation and giving it some resistance. So it's a similar goal. Yeah. It's just a different mechanism, but that's a, that's a similar goal as what I'm proposing with phonation, which is also going to slow the pressure release um, as compared to just a totally open glottis. Yeah. But I think people are using it for that purpose, like to help with other muscles turning on like abdominals and pelvic floor, but also to, I think in theory, what people are thinking, they're, they're getting the exhale on exertion to decrease intra-abdominal pressure. Right. This also, Kathy and I were just talking about that. Like, I think that we need to really move past that quickly. This idea of exhale on exertion. I think that it's also, it's like step one. I think for somebody who's learning how it helps because, um, because you're adding more resistance and you need to recruit a little bit more TA and pelvic floor. I think that for somebody who cannot connect to those muscles and needs more cueing to figure it out. It's a great way to help them figure out how to activate those muscles, but it is not functional to be only activating during or doing effort on an exhale. So So why? This is so important because, um, I mean, physios definitely, but all the whole health fitness professional side has taken this on, which is great. But then I have patients going, Oh my God, I breathed in when I did that. How are you supposed to run or do any acti- continuous activity if you're only allowed to do that effort on exhale? Like, are you <sighs> every step you take when you're running? Like, that's yeah. total. I mean, you're going to hyperventilate. <laughs> yeah. I just think that that's, it's just not functional. It's not realistic. And I don't think we should expect that of our patients. And I think we should train them better. Use that in the beginning if they can't yeah. figure it out. And then quickly move on. Quickly add in inspiration. <laughs> you should be able to maintain your motor control on inspiration as well. Everything should not go pear-shaped. <laughs> like, yes. Because especially with a squat, I've been seeing, you know, there was a um, a big move towards, you know, inhaling to come down and exhaling to come up. Then I'm like, oh, that's all well and truly good if you're not thinking about what happens in real life and you're just taking right. one exercise and slowing it down but right. as soon as you've got a squat right. running after your toddler that you yeah. have to grab from running into the street like you're not thinking you okay think about okay, it. let me yeah, let, let me, me inhale as I'm bending down yes <laughs> you, 
I think of that. And and that's when people have, that's when you have yeah. leakage prolapse or problems. It's or not- during, well, during a workout, like if the workout, you're huffing and puffing and you're really tired and you're doing squats over and over and over again, you can't necessarily then do it that way. So it then has to change, right. but then right. people get really worried or they're not sure what to do. So then what, what right. do you do with people? I again move on pretty quickly. Like I will, I usually in the beginning when I'm first introducing the concept of how the breath relates to intercore facilitation. And, you know, this is like Shirley Sarman 101 bent knee fallout. Like we're doing uh, exhalation on effort in the very beginning. And then within the first week, I'm trying to just have them breathing continuously and moving in and out on the breath. Like I try and kind of move on quickly from that. Um, And then if we get to harder exercises and I see they're kind of dropping that control, I'll go back to it a little bit and then move on. Um, And I, and I do think, and I'm sort of thinking of this now as we're talking, so maybe this is not the most thought out, but Um, I think that it relates to the idea of having that sort of cyclical concentric eccentric control developed that there is this cycle and we're not just relaxing on inhale, but it's actually eccentric control. And so you need to kind of get that down so that you can have this continuous sort of lengthening, shortening cycle in the muscles that's always controlled and not just contract, relax, contract, relax. It's not on off light switch. It's dimmer switch that's moving up and down. So coming back to the research that you're doing, because I think what I was also reading was you were going to be comparing the transabdominal ultrasound approach you're doing to transperineal. Yeah. So that's what I got this um, foundation for PT research grant to do. Um, So basically we developed our own method I'm sure you're very familiar with all of the different methods of pelvic floor um, ultrasound. And there's, so there's kind of two camps. I would say the main camp is transperineal. Um, And that's kind of Peter Dietz's model of how you're, you know, measuring the change in the anorectal angle and um, relative to the pubic symphysis and um, to our arbitrary line. Right. The other method that's been described is the transabdominal method where basically you are taking you're you're putting a marker at the bottom at the base of the bladder neck taking some sort of cine loop so you're you're doing a little recording of the action and then you have like a start and a and an end picture and you take and you overlay them on top of each other and you take a marker at the bladder neck at the end and you basically measure the distance but um it's a more controversial method because there's no fixed or bony landmark that you're referencing to. So there's a lot of different reasons that you could have like either pro migration or just it's to me, it seems like kind of a more confusing approach measurement. Um, and it doesn't have great reliability and validity. Like certainly the transperineal method has shown better reliability and validity. So our aim was to try and develop a different method of measuring transabdominal ultrasound that, so we, we still couldn't, we could not figure out a way. I'm working with a sonographer who like pelvic floor ultrasound is her expertise. And we just could not figure out a way to consistently get a bony landmark in the picture. So what we, we decided to do 
actually, I think there was one other author who did, who did measure against the pubic synthesis, but we just, we like could not replicate it. Um, so we made a diagonal line across the bladder and we measured bladder distortion. Um, so we, like we took basically like someone's rate of filling. Yeah. There's tons of issues. Yeah. Like that. (laughs) We tried to keep it pretty crude in that we were basically just trying to discern if the pelvic floor was elevating or descending based on if that diagonal line was shortening or lengthening. So we're not trying to get real specific with numbers of like, Mm. because I just don't think it's possible to even like really be able to tell because of all those issues. Um, So why don't you stick with transperineal? Well, I think I'm going to probably switch to transperineal. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is what's going to happen. So I'm supposed to be doing that study right now. Obviously, with COVID and everything, we can't mm. do any human subject research right now. Um, so that's going to be delayed until... 2025. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> children are in college. Yeah. So we're, what we want to do, what the aim of that study was, was to basically see if when if when we do see that diagonal shortening is that consistent with pelvic floor elevating based on the transperineal method i don't know that we're going to be able to validate our method to be honest i would not be surprised if we couldn't but Mm. um but you need to be able to do things to say you can't do it yeah i mean i think it's worth exploring like i think that yeah and that was sort of the point of my pilot study is we need to Nothing is going to improve if you don't try. So yeah. let's just try. Let's see if we can make it a little better. I think our goal was to basically improve a little bit on the current transverse or uh, transabdominal method by adding a reference point. Again, there's problems with that method. There's problems with the other method. I think truly there's problems with all of the methods. But um, yeah, we thought we'd take a stab at it. <laughs> so that's cool. what we're going to do. One other thing that I was just thinking about when we were talking about ultrasound was, um, what's it called? Glottis holding. People are doing it in like Brazil and hyper, what's that? Hypopressives. Yes, hypopressives. What are your thoughts on it with respect to the glottis and then pressure and then everything else? Yeah, so... This is actually what the NIH grant that we put in is about. We're actually, we, what I want to look at is, um, you know, I want to see what's happening in the vocal folds. If the, if the idea behind hypopressives is, and this is not the whole idea, but some of the ideas that you're creating, you're doing this specific breath pattern in order to create a vacuum in the abdominal cavity, you're also creating a simultaneous vacuum in the thoracic cavity. I think you must be. And they actually show, I think there was one, I found one study that wasn't, it was a conference proceeding. It wasn't published, but they measured intrathoracic and intra-abdominal pressure during a hypopressive exercise and both lowered, which makes sense because essentially you're I think of everything in terms of balloons, <laughs> but you're deflating a balloon, pinching off the end and then squeezing, like pulling the middle wide. So you're going to have a suction. You're going to have a vacuum at both the top and the bottom half. So if the premise is that you're improving um, 
tone, muscle function, coordination, position, economy, all of that in the abdominal cavity, couldn't that also be related to improving economy, tone, muscle, function, vibration in the vocal fold, in the larynx? And I think it's related. So in the vocal world, in the singing world, they do something called semi-occluded vocal tract exercises where they basically create, they artificially lengthen their vocal tract with resistance by breathing in and out of, or singing out of a straw. And the idea when you sing through a straw, they just do it for warm up, um, but it creates sort of this pressure loop within the mouth and above like the supraglottic region. So like above the glottis and within the mouth and it, um, their models have shown that it, this is like engineering computer models, but they show that it improves the, the contact between the vocal folds and the efficiency of the vocal fold vibration. Um, and I sort of suspect it's a, well, I'm curious if a similar mechanism is possible by hypopressives, like if it could potentially improve vocal fold economy as well. Um, so we're going to kind of try and look at that or if there's a possibility that it's dangerous for vocalists. But I think that um, it, I'd be curious to see if that's a type of exercise, a hypopressive exercise, which was developed for the pelvic floor world, if that could be useful and relevant to people with vocal fold dysfunction. Um, you know, I'm particularly interested in the land of COVID and survivorship from COVID if people who are having respiratory hypofunction are going to need other interventions in order to improve their respiratory function. If that could be a type of exercise that could be useful for them. I think that it is really interesting the way we're manipulating the diaphragm in that exercise. I don't have a lot of experience with it. I have talked with Tamara Rial a bit about it um, and she's going to collaborate hopefully with us on some studies. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm I don't know that much about it, but I'm very interested. I think that I think that it's really getting to the heart of the um the heart of the pressure canister, which is the diaphragm. Um and there's, you know, other than like cueing lateral costal breathing or sort of different breath cues, I don't think there's a lot that's really targeting the diaphragm i don't know do you have thoughts on that like do you how do you address the diaphragm i hypopressives have intrigued me for a long time i get really cynical when things are hyped up to be uh, yeah me too the I'm, best thing in the world i find I the little bits that i have heard or learned about it i find it confusing which then makes me go if it's that confusing how are even if you take right. courses right. the the sound of it if like if it's that confusing for me to work out how to do right. it how am I supposed to teach right. someone else I mean, to do it to be honest I find it a little bit scary <laughs> like when I try doing the exercise myself I'm like oh god this is giving me a panic attack right now like it feels like scuba diving to me I can't even um, work out how to do it <laughs> 
I know. Which well, is not that, helpful. And I think that that's a problem with it because you see, yeah. you know, there's yeah. obviously in the literature, there's a lot of like back and forth between different groups that are like poo-pooing it and defending it. And, you know, a lot of the defending it comes from like, well, you just weren't doing it right when you did it in your study. That puts my back Which, up. <laughs> right. Like that, I think that that's not okay. Like if you have to be, if every patient has to be trained by an expert, like how realistic is this really and how useful and functional is it? Cause like we're trying to employ this and, and it's being, it's very trendy right now. Like it's mm. being used across the, at least in the U S like all over in physio clinics and women's health clinics. And I, I, if that's, if it's that difficult to do it correctly, that's tricky and problematic. So that's, <clears throat> That's one of my problems with it. Now, um, I have had I had a patient a couple years ago who came in, and she was a few months post-birth. She had been, I, can, I can't remember if she'd been doing hyperpressis before. It's not very big in Australia, but she'd found someone who was training her through it. She'd been doing it forever, and it was the only thing that helped her symptoms. She had a prolapse. And so I was using transperineal ultrasound with her and she could not for the life of her work out how to consciously activate pelvic floor. But every time she did the hypopressive technique that she did, because she was good at it, um, everything turned on and everything lifted. And it was beautiful. And I went, weird. But how do you know that it lifted versus contracted? No, um, pelvic organs position lifted. Okay. Okay. So I was looking at uh, pelvic organ. Uh, so when I palpated digitally, she yeah. could not make anything happen just thinking about it. And when whatever she did, I could feel like a squeeze against my finger. And when I used transperineal ultrasound to look at organ position in yeah, like 2D mid-sagittal, you could see everything go into a superior position. And I was just like, this is weird um and yeah we had a really good conversation because she was so open about trying different things and I was like okay and we had worked together on and off for kind of a few months and she still couldn't consciously do things and I'm like well you you've got to get into different positions and train your pelvic floor in different positions but use that technique because it's working for you best but we had a good conversation about, okay, the whole point of it is not to breathe, but I need you to learn how to work your body when you are breathing. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of goes back to the question of exhale on effort, like how functional is that? And it I wasn't think... functional. And even she felt it wasn't functional, but it took her. So I reviewed her about a year later. And finally, of her just doing whatever she needed to do, she could start, but I still made her always start trying to find it consciously and she could finally get some activation and then I reviewed her about two months ago so this is two years after having her baby and she could finally actually consciously do pelvic floor but I still I've recorded the video and she's told me I can actually put it up and I was going to send it to you and I was going to put it up um I'm hesitant about putting it on social media because people will take it and be like, see, I told you so. And I don't want that to happen. But it is it is beautiful what does happen for her when she does this technique, even in standing to organ position. But then you have to breathe. I mean, I think that there's a couple of questions there. And one is um, related to the long term benefits. Like, is it? Or, or even just um, 
not reproducibility, the generalizability of that skill. Mm. Like if you can, again, if you can only achieve that outcome when you're doing the specific exercise, it's not really generalizable or functional. No, um, no. But I think that there's something to say for different cues working for different people. Hmm. And that is a cue, like if nothing else is working for her, but that is the thing that works for her, then that's her entry point. And she and left I, it. And I was like, you continue yeah, to do that, but we need to work on other things too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think it comes back to like the end all be all. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily, it's probably not going to be the end all be all for everyone, but I think it's probably a good tool to have in your toolbox to try if you need something, mm. if you to like try something else. I mean, and that's kind of where I was coming in with the, with the straw exercises because I am wondering if it has a similar effect of creating a vacuum, but it's much easier to do um, where you're either breathing in or out or singing in and out of a straw. Um, we're going to look at that more to see kind of what the effect of what's actually happening. We'll look at that on transperineal ultrasound to see. But, um, you know, if that could be another tool in your toolbox that's maybe a little bit easier for people. I think it's probably equally mm. not functional, yeah. but um, I just, I do think there's something to say for having lots of different cues, having lots of different tools available, understanding that people are coming into this with a whole variety of body awareness and understanding mm. if well, you have to just go really, really basic or really, really obscure <laughs> in order to get, like, I think the pelvic floor is really hard for some people to connect to. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they just cannot figure out how to activate, like, tr- just throw it all at them. Throw <laughs> it know? all at them, yeah. Throw it all at them until you can find something that works. But And that's where I get into trouble with, re- or that's, I guess, my issue with research is I just feel like, I mean, come on, at the end of the day, like everyone is so different. It's, I just, I sort of morally, (laughs) I have a hard time with like buying studies of 30 people or 10 people, even though here I am producing it. I think that it's just, it's hard. It's really hard being also a clinician being like, okay, this is what the literature says. This is not what happens when I get my hands on a patient. It's so hard. Oh, so, I know. I know. I but I, <laughs> I do enjoy it. As yeah, in like, I, I love, I think, it's I think it's really important. I think it helps to guide clinical practice, but I think it really is a marriage between clinical practice and research and yeah. inform each other for sure. I hope everyone's mind was blown as mine was. And please consider subscribing to the podcast, rating the podcast on Apple so that more people can find it. And take care, everyone.